0: Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast. I'm your host, Gil Greco. Today, I'm sitting with Dr. Chris Swanson, who's the president of Gutenberg College and a tutor here. Uh, Welcome to the show, Chris.
1: Thank you very much, Gil. I'm excited about it.
0: So before we get started with today's topic, uh, this is the first episode that we're doing for this whole podcast So we might want to take a minute here and explain what we're doing. And, uh, you know, since uh, you were the president of Gutenberg, who better to explain what's going on than you?
1: Sure. Um, I'd be happy to. So our our idea behind the podcast is to sort of explore uh, various issues, especially issues that we can pursue through the great books. Um, Gutenberg College is a great book school and we spend a lot of time talking about a variety of books. And these books give us an opportunity to raise all sorts of questions and have conversations. And a podcast is an ideal situation where you can engage on a variety of different topics and ask these questions and, uh, and interact with people, recognizing the complexity of the issues and the things in the books. And, and I think another piece of this is that these books and the conversations and the topics that are raised uh, are pertinent for life today. So not only are we gonna be looking at the books and looking at the various topics, but we're gonna be looking at how those impact us today.
0: All right, so we just have a couple of housekeeping things in here. Our plan is to do one of these every two weeks. You can find the recordings of these podcasts on our website or anywhere that you could find podcasts. And basically, we're going to be covering topics from Western Civilization, which is the freshman and sophomore course that sort of introduces people to these great books that are sort of core to the Gutenberg curriculum. So let's get to the topic. You really wanted our first topic to be about communication and persuasion. Why is that?
1: Well, communication and persuasion are a big part of our society today. Um, we are, you know, have a barrage of different kinds of communication that are coming at us. And, uh, and to look at some of the communication styles that exist out there, I think is, is significant. And it's not a new question. It's a question that's been around for a long time. And, uh, so that's kind of my motivation is to think about it. And since we're doing a podcast, we're communicating as well. So it's worthwhile being a little introspective about what this podcast is. And uh, and I think that there's a lot of discussion that we can have on just what is the nature of communication and how is our podcast working with that?
0: Great. So you said this is a question that's been going on a long time. Um, obviously, the granddaddy of... Uh, Western philosophy who brings up a lot of the questions that uh, the great books and uh, this podcast are going to deal with is Plato. So Plato had this idea of rhetoric and dialectic. We still use these terms today, but could you you sort of lay out what Plato meant and maybe the Greeks in general sort of meant by these terms?
1: Sure. So, this is specific to Plato, I think, but generally speaking in Greek life, a big part, especially in Athens, a big part of Greek life was persuading the assembly or persuading the crowd, the public um, in cases before the court. So the assembly would be gathered together and some court case would be before them and somebody would have to persuade them that this person was guilty or not guilty or owed money or not owed money much like in a court of law today except for instead of having a jury of 12 or a judge you would have a jury of 500. So it became very pertinent and valuable to come up with the skill of being able to persuade the crowd persuade the 500. And the technique for doing that and the methods that they used was referred to as rhetoric. So rhetoric was the method of persuading the the large crowd. Uh, Towards your argument, and dialectic, on the other hand, was something that was more specific that that Plato was interested in, which is an interaction between two people, a sort of a question-answer kind of thing. If you've ever read a, a Platonic dialogue, you see that sort of Q and A. Socrates is asking questions, and people are answering. That's more the dialectic style.
0: So obviously, we still use this term of rhetoric when we're talking about somebody, you know, performing a speech or something like that but this idea of dialectic is a little more of a i don't know like a philosophical term aside from just the the audience that you would be delivering the speech to right you said rhetoric was more sort of like a crowd and dialectic was more sort of between two people what are other differences between rhetoric and dialectic
1: that's a really good question i think that um that Plato explores this in one of my very favorite dialogues of all time. It's a dialogue called Gorgias or Gorgias. I don't know how you say it, but I'm going to call it Gorgias. Then um, Gorgias was this sophist. Uh, he was a teacher of rhetoric and he would teach students to use rhetorical techniques and argue for any particular position that he wanted to argue for. And so Socrates and Gorgias get into this interaction about what's going on and what, what Gorgias is trying to do. And I would say that ultimately it kind of comes down to uh, Gorgias sees rhetoric and Socrates sort of brings it out of him as a way of uh, arguing for a case whether or not you know what is true or independent of what is true. Um, there's a great quote. I found this great quote. It's a straight from the dialogue. It says, the rhetorician has no need to know the truth about things, but merely to discover a technique of persuasion so as to appear among the ignorant to have more knowledge than the expert. It is all about winning. At least that's the way that Plato is portraying rhetoric. Um, he, he then goes on to say something like, it aims at what is pleasant, ignoring the good. The idea is that the crowd is going to be persuaded by things that they like things that are pleasing to them things that tickle their fancy that make them interested or excited or emotional or something along those lines and the rhetorician knows how to tickle their fancy or persuade them or push them in a direction that they that he wants them to go and it doesn't have anything new to do necessarily with what's true or what's best or what the expert might say so the rhetorician might be able to make an argument about a medical care um better than the doctor who actually knows better is sort of an example that that uh socrates use um whereas with dialectic the idea is uh more to engage an individual person back and forth to figure out what they think how they interact with it The two people are attempting to discover the truth together. So the aim here is different. It's not to persuade the crowd. The aim is much more to elicit and find the truth in sort of a a partnership, if you will. There is a great quote there as well that Socrates says, For I know how to produce one witness to the truth of what I say, the man with whom I am debating, but the others I ignore. I know how to secure one man's vote, But with the many, I will not even enter into discussion because Socrates can't have a discussion with many people. He can't have that back and forth. All you can do is try and use the least common denominator to persuade them all. So that to me sort of captures the essence of the difference. The rhetoric is to persuade the crowd in accordance with what is pleasing rather than what is true. And dialectic is a back and forth between two people
0: Attempting to find out what is right and true. So that difference between <clears throat> uh, rhetoric and dialectic, it it seems like it might put the person who's practicing dialectic at a disadvantage. That because they maybe don't have the means to persuade, you know, large amounts of people. That the, you know those people might turn against them. You know, this is, this is sort of famously what happens to Socrates in his life is that he, uh, he's in a trial where he, he is not successful at convincing everybody that he should live and they condemn him to death. It seems that that's, you know, uh, somewhat common trait of sort of heroes of dialectic, if we could say that. It seems like Jesus was also somebody who is interested in sort of pursuing the truth regardless of how popular that was. Can you talk about sort of the similarities in Socrates' approach and Jesus' approach as they're sort of wrestling with how do they how do they deal with people and what are they doing as they're communicating?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, based on the way that I've sort of outlined Socrates' position on rhetoric, um, it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to engage in that kind of rhetorical rhetorical technique because he's interested in individual people's souls. And Socrates is in the same place. He's interested in, in the individual person. He's not interested in gaining power I mean it becomes really clear in Gorgias at least that the the advantage of the rhetorician the thing that the rhetorician is able to do is able to persuade the crowd so like one of the big examples is if you're really good at rhetoric maybe you can you can have the power to condemn condemn your enemies and help your friends or something like that and there's this one great ironic quote from Socrates where he says Uh, After this long discussion with this one guy, Polis, he concludes, so we should use rhetoric for the sole purpose of exposing our own misdeeds and ridding ourselves of the greatest of all evils, wickedness, which is exactly the opposite of the way normally people think of rhetoric is to win the argument, to get what you want, as opposed to condemn yourself or to recognize your own problem. And Jesus was was doing the same thing. I mean, there's so many examples where he's interacting with individuals, right? And even when he's talking with the crowds, he doesn't like get up and, and I mean, he's no Martin Luther King. He's not getting up there and, you know, giving this moving speech where everybody is like, oh yes, we're going to follow you, Jesus. He, he talks in parables. I mean, everybody walks away and going, what the heck is he talking about? Right. And it's the same when he's in, he's working with individuals. There's a great example in John 4 where he's talking with the woman at the well. Probably many of you are familiar with the story where the woman of the well comes up and he asks her for a drink and she's like taken aback. Like, why are you asking me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman, right? And, you know, Jewish men do not ask Samaritan women for drinks. That's just not something that was ever done. She's not She's unclean probably or something along those lines. So she's really surprised. So... He then tells her like, I can give you living water as the conversation goes on, like living water. What the heck? How are you going to give me living water? You, you don't even have like a pail and a bucket or anything to get the water out. And then he keeps, he keeps going at it. He says, well, if, if I give you, if you drink the water that I have, you will no longer thirst. And she's like, what? What is this? What's going on? Well, okay, uh, I'll take that. I, I'm I'm happy to have water where I'm no longer going to thirst. She's still I don't think she's recognizing who she's talking to at this point, and he's still cryptic in the way he's going at it. And then he finally says something like he he says, "Well, go get your husband if you want this water." And she says, "Oh, I don't have a husband." And he, and then he tells her something about herself, namely that she has five husbands, and this is something that he shouldn't know. And she's like amazed. So this is sort of like almost a miracle. It's like the first miracle for her. He's not like healing anybody. He's not changing water into wine. He's not, you know, feeding 5,000 or anything. He's just telling her something about her background. And she's immediately like, this is somebody that I need to interact with. If she had gone a different way, he would have gone a different way. But she leans in. And so he leans in. So she says, well... But I'm a Samaritan. I'm not a Jew. And then he says, well, everybody can worship in spirit and truth. So now that's also surprising. Everything is sort of shocking and surprising. Everything he says. And then she mentions, maybe he's a prophet, you know, and I've heard of this person called a Messiah. And then he says, he is the Messiah. So he doesn't start with the punchline at the beginning of the conversation. He ends with the punchline, but only after he has interacted with her, only is after he has sort of kind of explored who she is and where she's coming from it and how she is responding to him. It is only at the end that he finally says that I am the Messiah. And that is good because then her response is to go and tell everybody else about him. Right. If you look at other places where people don't respond well to Jesus, he goes a different direction. Right. He says different sorts of things. So he's constantly Talking to people, asking them questions, saying things which are kind of surprising or ironic or unusual, and and they are and he's watching how they respond, and depending on how they respond, he is he is interacting with them. So it's very much a one-on-one kind of a thing for Jesus, at least in most cases.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that Jesus, you know, being the Messiah and having this sort of the the gospel message that he's bringing to everybody, doesn't come to every person in sort of the same way that like as you're saying like he he's very interested in sort of interacting with people on their own terms and you know like like he's just very interested in sort of bridging the gap between himself and whoever he's talking to and it's interesting that uh you know as a christian it's very important to sort of believe in the truth and believe what is what, what is real, right? That's, that's true for Jesus and it was true for Socrates and sort of we believe as Christians that there is a particular thing that Jesus was pointing to as sort of ultimate reality, but that Jesus wasn't interested in sort of just pointing, um, sort of explicitly um, toward that in sort of a sermonizing or rhetorical kind of way, right? He wasn't interested in communicating that through rhetoric. He was more interested in this sort of dialectical um, approach. So, why is it that, or why do you think it was that Jesus didn't approach the issues related to sort of ultimate you know, life and death sorts of issues with rhetoric. Why did he have this approach where he was very focused on sort of dealing with people on their own terms and sort of reacting to kind of where they were and sort of leaning into where they were wanting to go?
1: That's a great question, Gil. I think this is sort of a a kind of a mystery that a lot of people deal with in the Bible. It's It's a confounding one. There's a lot of places where Jesus is talking about you know, hiding things from people and he's talking in parables and so on and so forth. But my guess is that Jesus is is not about winning. He's not like, I. my job here is to sort of convince as many people as I possibly can to say certain things and to agree to certain conclusions or doctrines or whatever. That's not what he's there for. He's, he's there for individual souls. That's what he's really interested in. And he's far more concerned with a particular person, you know, coming to the truth and accepting who he is uh, and, and, and sort of helping them to recognize what's true, to help them to come to recognize for themselves what they care about, right? What do they care about? Do they care about him and the truth and God, or do they care about the things of this world? That kind of a thing. So he's constantly putting this question before people. What do you care about? And the Pharisees didn't like it. The, The people in power didn't like it because they were after convincing everybody of a particular perspective that they thought would cause, you know, essentially the coming of the Messiah <laughs> and uh, or the conquering of of the Romans by the Jews they were interested more in something along that line and you need to have everybody convinced I don't feel like that was Jesus's goal. It never has been it never was to sort of win at all costs kind of thing
0: and do you think there's something in sort of pursuing rhetoric that is that is sort of aimed at that sort of, well, necessarily, it certainly, yeah, it certainly has been used that way. I don't know if it has to be used that
1: way, but in a lot of cases, it seems like that is the the primary aim is to persuade the group, to get the group on your side, to find allegiance, to call people to action, that sort of thing, like that. I'm not saying that it's that is the only use of it.
0: Um, so we we have this idea of dialectic, this idea of rhetoric. And we've seen sort of Jesus and Socrates both interested in this sort of idea of dialectic, which seems from what you've been saying is very focused on not so much on uh, propounding a particular perspective or a particular conclusion, but it's very sort of interested in the the person that someone's dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, this seems really related to Kierkegaard's idea of Indirect communication, do you think there's some connection there?
1: I, I think so. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I think, again, this is something I'm not so sure about, but I think that Kierkegaard's two heroes were Socrates and Jesus. <laughs> so if he's going to be in line with with them, I think that it's the same sort of thing. As far as I understand, yes, indirect communication is very much an opportunity where where a teacher is not trying to explicitly tell the learners the truth, not trying to convince people of his particular position or her position, but rather to sort of help them discover it for themselves. So indirect communication, the teacher is not the authority. I mean, we're so surrounded always by authorities telling us the position that is the true position that everybody needs to hold in indirect communication there's an exploration there's a there's a giving birth of knowledge it is eliciting the particular person that you're interacting with eliciting their thoughts and having them interact with those thoughts and think about them so if there's a problem to be solved it's the learner's job to solve it not the teacher's which really goes against strongly I think against all of our media all of our education I mean education is is completely enmeshed in this idea that the teacher is the expert and is going to be able to give all the answers and so yeah no I think that uh I think that Kierkegaard is very very in line with the way that both Socrates and Jesus are approaching
0: things. I remember uh years ago I was talking to Ron about this idea of indirect communication. And often when you know people people here at Gutenberg will read about indirect communication, the idea that they get is, Oh, I have to be as obtuse as possible. <laughs> right. As I'm like as I'm like communicating something that I understand, right? Um, and <laughs> because Kierkegaard was obtuse, let's just well, be, let's it's, admit it's, it. <laughs> it is true, and so were so were Socrates and Jesus. Absolutely, right? like absolutely. It is it is the obtuseness of those people, though, seems to be very focused on sort of forcing people to have to sort of work through stuff. But I remember Ron making this comment that I found really interesting, which he said, indirect communication is really interested in the other person responding to how you were communicating. But you can, you could make statements that were clear and sort of were laying out what the truth was. But the difference he saw was that you were, you were doing that in such a way that you were allowing somebody to sort of go, okay, what am I going to do with that? How am I going to deal with that? And that's sort of fundamentally different from what you're talking about in terms of social media and education where everything's very like, this is what you have to believe. And it's not sort of allowing for the humanity of the listener to sort right. of make their own decision. Absolutely. Absolutely
1: it is it is all about respecting the people that we are talking to, giving them the opportunity to think for themselves. I think the key distinction to be made in all of this is are we giving the listener the opportunity to think for themselves or are we asking the listener to abdicate their responsibility of thinking for themselves and simply accept what it is that we have to say. That to me is is the fundamental key difference about what we're talking about here.
0: And that makes a lot of sense why you would appeal to like what somebody wants, right? Their, their pleasures or desires, like in that earlier quote. Absolutely. Because it's the sort of thing that we all sort of know how to tug at. Whereas when you're dealing with individual human beings, like our experiences are so different that it becomes really difficult to sort of appeal to this person sort of on a, on a soul level Right. that's not just uh, appealing to sort of the the most basic sorts of things. Pascal has this idea that rhetoric is just focused on pleasures and desires Mm -hmm. and is not interested in sort of, you know, this idea of of the person's soul or a person's mind. How does Pascal's sort of contribution to this, do you think, um, sort of illuminate um, this idea of dialectic and rhetoric and Mm -hmm. how we ought to go about communicating?
1: Yeah, Pascal is a really interesting guy. He wrote. He wrote a work called The Art of Persuasion, I believe is what it was titled. And uh, he has two parts to The Art of Persuasion. The first part is uh, basically an examination of reason and logic and how you might go about making an argument. And then he says the second part is how you might persuade, persuade the crowd kind of thing. And he he says, um, he says the art of persuasion consists as much in that of pleasing as in that of convincing. So much more are men governed by caprice than by reason. Okay? So he recognizes that we can please people and get a result rather than using reason. He goes on to say. But the manner of pleasing is incomparably more difficult, more subtle, more useful and more admirable. Therefore, I do not treat of it. It is because I'm not capable of it. And I feel myself so far disproportionate to the task that I believe the thing absolutely impossible. So he was recognizing that reasoning in his mind was easy, but trying to persuade people by what is pleasing is is far more difficult. But he also brings in another piece that I think that has not come up yet and I think is, is also sort of key and central to the whole thing about why we're trying to make this distinction between rhetoric and, and dialectic. It's, it's having to do with our will. If I am resistant to what somebody has to say, then no amount of rhetoric is going to affect me. He says... God only pours out his light into the mind after having subdued the rebellion of the will. So he's recognizing that this whole business of persuasion, dialectic, rhetoric, the whole thing, it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's an exercise of the will. So that's why we go back to the whole pleasing thing. Our wills desire what is pleasing and pleasant and happy and and comfortable And so, yeah, that's a big piece
0: of the whole picture. So, just to clarify what you were saying earlier, Pascal is interested in this idea of reasoning. Mm -hmm. Because as if I'm sitting in my armchair, right, and I'm thinking through, you know, some philosophical issue or some political issue, it's really easy for me to go, oh, I see how I've decided what I believe. But it's very hard to sort of then go to, you know, the – Another person and sort of convince them of that as clear as that might be for me. Even if it's really clear for me, it's, it, it's maybe very difficult to convince them of Mm
1: that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: So this idea of dialectic seems like a very sort of hard to attain kind of way of thinking about things it's it's much more common in our culture even in sort of christian culture to sort of embrace this idea of just sort of rhetoricking people you know the way that we convince people to get through the door is by appealing to the stuff that they really want and then if they have enough exposure, maybe that will sort of convince them otherwise. So, this idea of, of dialectic has sort of a pie-in-the-sky kind of idea to it. I mean, most people aren't using dialectic to communicate.
1: Right. No, I agree. I mean, most people – well, I mean, again, in, in, in individual conversations, this sort of thing can come up, I I think. But – for the most part our culture has sort of landed on something more more sort of effective in the persuasive arts i mean you can see it and it is and as time has gone on they've taken up this this task that pascal refused because he thought it was impossible and they've said well we're going to figure it out and they've used you know psychology, studying the way people's minds work, looking at their desires, looking at what is most pleasing to them and figuring out ways to sort of target those areas. So you see things like uh, video games, YouTube, TikTok, all these various kinds of platforms where they have sort of scientifically discovered exactly the right things to do to keep you on their platform as long as possible. That is their goal, to keep you on their platform as long as possible. So they they don't make the video game too hard because then people will be frustrated and they don't make it too easy because then it's not challenging. And they bring up the next YouTube video, which they have figured out is the one that is gonna be most exciting to you. So they have come up with amazing technology to persuade you and the same thing is true in in the art of politics and in all sorts of different forms of media and things like that it's people have become incredibly expert at figuring out ways to persuade
0: you. And so this this comes back to this idea that we were talking about earlier about like relating to people's as souls, right? It's right. it's not so much nowadays that you know you've figured out how to appeal to people as souls rather you're sort of you're sort of objectifying people and you're sort of making them you're sort of trying to figure out okay what technologies can we use in order to sort of get people to do whatever it is that we want them to do whether that's to buy a product or vote for some political cause or whatever and that issue is i mean it's sort of central to a lot of discussion in the 20th century. Um one of our heroes around here is Jacques Alule, who talks a lot about this in both the technological society, this idea that we're constantly sort of trying to make everything as machine-like as possible so we don't have to interact with with human beings. And also in propaganda. Um, what does Alul add to this the these ideas that we've been discussing?
1: Yeah. He's, he is incredibly insightful. He's a, a French philosopher from the middle of the 20th century, incredibly insightful sociologist who really was a, a, alive during the uh, World War II. And he watched the rise of the Nazi power. He watched the rise of the Stalinist regime. He watched what was going on in his own country, in England, in America. He was, he was very keen observer and he noticed that there were a number of key features that were sort of similar to the way all these nations were interacting with the people that they were, that they were trying to persuade and convince to do, to take certain kinds of actions. So. I mean, I can go through a few of his his key results, but for instance, one of the big one of the big results is that um, you the country or the propagandist or the people who are trying to do the persuasion needs to break down small local communities. If you have a small local community, then they are going to depend on each other for what they think is true they are going to interact with each other they are going to take their cues from each other and they're going to find out what is true about life and live their life in accordance with the community that they live in whether that be a little christian community or whether it be a parish or just a, a small village or whatever as long as you have these tight groups then they're not susceptible to sort of a more a broader nationalized kind of perspective so you want to. You want to sort of destroy these smaller associations and turn everything national, which you can see, at least in the media, everything is sort of national. Nobody really cares about what's going on locally. Everybody's always concerned about the national or the world stage. You know, you also want to encourage people to follow like-minded groups. So if there is a particular perspective, you want everybody to sort of join that perspective and interact with each other on that perspective and to continue to
0: you know, reinforce those sorts of things. So you can have a small community that's sort of interested in local concerns, but you can also have a small community that's sort of interested, you know, like one of the advantages of the internet is that people who like similar things can sort of don't have to rely on their local community to sort of enjoy those same sorts of things right that they that they they can find other people why is it that it seems like that sort of small community might be susceptible to this sort of thing whereas the sort of more local community isn't do you have a do you have an idea of why that difference might be
1: i guess it really depends on the kind of community that that is created the one thing about a local community where the people are interacting with each other on on sort of a face to face basis is that it's a it's a it's a very complex multifaceted kind of an interaction and if there's conflict then the you almost have to interact with that conflict you can't like ignore it you can try and you know sort of separate yourself a little bit but if the community is small sort of like in a family if there's conflict in the family you can't avoid it If you have a small church group, if there's conflict in the small church group, you're seeing each other all the time. So eventually it it needs to be worked out or addressed. If you have like a, if you have a, I don't know, a forum or something like that, and it's a particular topic, well, if there's conflict, you know. You're not face to face. You don't yeah, have you to live with them. somewhere else. You can go somewhere else. Yeah. You can you can you can you can mouth off and be mean or whatever. And there's no consequences to it either. There's no social ostracism or criticism or anything like that. What I see a lot of propagandists doing and this is what uh, Alul is talking about is again, appealing to the common denominator. So what is it? What is the kind of emotion that everybody is is really in tune with? Well, fear. So if you can appeal to people's fear, you can get them to be afraid of something else then they can be on your side. What about, you know, righteous indignation? This is a big one as well, I think. It's, you know, if if you can show that somebody else is doing something awful, then everybody is, you know, how dare they? Justice is not served. We need to fix it. Or sexuality is also a big one. That one, you know, sex sells. That's that's something that's that's been true forever. So In these situations, it's not so, you know, it's almost like good and bad are being redefined. You know, we want to, whatever raises people's hackles, that's bad. And whatever gets them, you know, afraid, that's kind of bad. So we're defining things in terms of the way that people are responding to these apparent evils that they they see out there and make them afraid. So we're redefining all sorts of things. Words are also redefined. You know, some of the most some of the most difficult words in the English language are you know things like justice and freedom and equality and things of this sort. I mean, these words have so many different connotations and mean so many different things in so many different places. What's the What's the famous one from uh, Animal Farm? Do you remember that one about pigs or something yes, like uh, that?
0: All animals are equal. Uh,
1: but uh, pigs no. are more equal than Yeah, but some are more equal, equal than, than others. others. That's it. Some are more equal than yes. others, right? Yes. So, I mean, there you have a word that is sort of like being twisted right. to mean something altogether opposite of what it was originally yeah. meant. And these, these sort of tools. And Alul goes into great depth about all the various tools and the various methods and the various kinds of ways that it impacts people. And he concludes that in our society, which is very much more – sort of disintegrated or separated or individualized that people are more susceptible to propaganda than they've ever been in the history of the world and that people actually need it if they don't have that small group from which to draw what life is all about, they need it they need significance and if they can find if the if the media or some other organization can provide that significance for them they eat it up so they're they're drawn to, the propaganda that exists for the very reason that they that they have no other place to look
0: it seems like a lot of that has to do with the fear of the messiness of actually dealing with other human beings mm-hmm. right cuz like we were just saying like the part of the reason that the local community is resilient is because you have to sort of deal with these people right you have to deal with them on their own terms which seems to be sort of an, a continual theme in what we've been talking about right like if if Jesus isn't approaching the crowd by telling them the thing that they want to hear. And and in fact, his most successful interactions are with individuals that he's sort of dealing with all of their, (laughs) all of their messiness. And it seems like to have interaction between human beings, there has to be a willingness to deal with that messiness because that's what it is like to deal with human beings. Yeah. It's
1: hard. It's painful. It's the struggle. That it is, it's one of the hardest things that we do. Look at our look at our neighborhoods. Everybody has their house. They live in their house. If they don't like their neighbor, they don't have to interact with their neighbor. They have a fence and they have a yard, and it's all very private and so on and so forth. You look at a smaller cultures, and you know, not everywhere obviously, but a lot of places where you know all the women get together and they they cook their meals together, right? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, maybe there's a lot of problems with that, but there's something positive about it too, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah. I mean, shameless plug for the Gutenberg residence program, but part of what we sort of highlight as one of the benefits of that is you have to live with these people. Right. And the Gutenberg curriculum in some sense is like that as well, right? You have classes who they're going to be with everybody in that class talking about really important stuff, and sometimes very personal stuff. And it's like you have to figure out how to like at least compromise with these people and if you're gonna get by, because there's just so much personal dynamics there that if you don't figure that out, that's just gonna grate on everybody. And so there's this big sort of need in sort of the way that the curriculum is set up and the way that the residence program is set up is when it's working well, there is there is a lot of friction because that's part of the process that's required for people to relate to each other. And I think we're hoping that this podcast does sort of a similar sort of thing. Obviously, we are not a live person who can sort of deal with the person at the other side of the podcast. But how are we sort of envisioning this podcast sort of dealing with that issue?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I've, I've been thinking about that a lot, especially since we've been doing this particular podcast as our introduction. I feel like this is sort of a hybrid in between maybe what a dialectic and a rhetoric is. I feel like, again, the key feature here is to what extent uh, are we raising questions and allowing the audience to think for themselves? And to what extent are we trying to convince people of a particular perspective? Our hope is that by having sort of an interactive kind of discussion, you and me, going back and forth and, and in our future podcasts, our hope is that we'll be raising some issues raising some questions or at least giving people something to think about for themselves. Not so much that we're trying to persuade anybody of a, of a specific agenda or perspective or something like that. But on the other hand, like you say, we can't interact directly with all the audience members because that's not the way the podcast works. So hopefully as sort of a, a bit of a hybrid um, between the two.
0: I think ultimately, you know, I mean, we want as many people to be involved in this project as possible. And this is very sort of, as we were saying, is a very difficult process. So the best value of Gutenberg is engaging with students who are going through the program. Otherwise, we, we want to continue to provide informative and thoughtful content like this podcast, that's allowing people to think through you know, issues that they may not have thought of or haven't quite thought of in this way, I think it will obviously be helpful for us if, if you like this podcast and it was helpful and you thought that there were interesting things to think about here. If you were to share it with folks that you know who would also find these topics interesting. Ultimately, we're interested in We're interested in these topics and we think they're valuable for people to hear about. I think that if people are interested
1: in what we've been saying and questions have been raised and issues have been raised and they really want to interact with us, then within the limits that we have as tutors or teachers or guests on this podcast, we welcome people's questions and interactions. They're welcome to try and contact us and, and we will try and respond. Uh, the best way to get a hold of us is at podcast at It's a pretty easy email. Just send us an email there and we'll monitor it. And we'll hopefully we'll get in contact with you within the limits of our time.
0: And if we need to do like a mailbag episode or something of that in the future, we'll just see how much, uh, how much interaction folks want to do. Well, Chris, thank you for your time. Thank you very much for inviting me on and uh, hopefully we can uh, do it again soon. Well, folks, thank you for listening to this conversation with me, Gil Greco and Dr. Chris Swanson about rhetoric and dialectic and uh, be sure to tune in next time. We'll be continuing to go through the great books of Western civilization in our next episode.